you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to talk about predestination this afternoon. I said that in one of our morning services, and uh, no lie, there was an audible groan by some visitors here in the front. And uh, two minutes in, they just got up and walked out. Um, so if, if you want to walk out, wait till like I pray, just, you know, so I don't actually watch it. Um, it's okay, it did, you know, rather than string along a relationship, we just got it over with early. <laughs> Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse three, we'll go through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. And this is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, we ask that through your spirit, you would show us in this moment just how much you have lavished your grace upon us. And may we just stand back and wonder. Lord, my words are death. Your words are life. We need life spoken to us. We need calloused hearts and closed minds opened by your spirit. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So the entire text we just read as we learned last week, is one sentence. In Greek, it's one sentence. It's 202 words long in which Paul is just kind of rapid firing all of the blessings that we have in Christ. Um, With so many words, such a long sentence, I've never read any English translation that tries to keep it one sentence because that's just bad grammar. Uh, But it's important for us to realize that this is all one flowing thought from Paul. But with so many words, it's hard to know, well, what exactly is the subject? What's the main verb here? Well, we find the main verb in verse 4. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. The word chose here, that God chose us. This is the only verb in this entire sentence that is not subordinate to some other element. In other words, this word chose is the primary thought, the primary verb that, that carries this entire sentence of 202 words. So, so all of the glorious things that Paul has been talking about here fall under this chosen, that, that God's chosen these things. So all of the blessings we have, our adoption, our forgiveness, our redemption, our sealing of the Spirit, all of our inheritance, all of these things are the results of God's choice. He chose to give us these things freely. And because they're freely given to us, we call that grace or sovereign grace. These things were lavished on us, not because of anything we did, not because we somehow bought them, we somehow earned them. God was somehow proud of something we did, so he then lavished them on, him, on us. These were simply the result of God's choice, his grace poured out for us. And that's why Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, we need to understand that the reason that this is just gushing out of Paul, these, these rapid-fire words, this run-on sentence, is because... Because Paul gets this. I mean, he gets this. He was literally on the road to Damascus, and he's going to persecute more Christians. And he wasn't looking for salvation. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't trying to experience grace. He certainly wasn't looking to have an experience with Jesus. That was not his plan. But then God had different plans, preordained plans. And Jesus met Paul on that road and utterly changed his life. And Paul got that. He's never gotten over it. So he can't help gushing about God's grace. Now I mentioned last week as we began this study on Ephesians that Paul writes this letter to answer the big questions, the big questions of why. Why are we Christians? Why is there a church? Why do we pray? Why do we try to live a holy, good life? Why do we do these things? And Paul's answer is this. You do them because God chose you to do them. You are a Christian because God chose you to be a Christian. You are filled with the Spirit because God chose you to be filled with His Spirit. You are saved because God chose you to be saved. Every blessing you have is a result of God's choice. That's the flow of this sentence. It's the the main point of this sentence. Now, of course, when you look back on your life and you think of the different things that brought you to Jesus, what, what you see, and, and everybody sees it, this when they look back at their own conversion, they see that God's spirit was already at work there drawing, drawing, them to your, I mean, drawing you to him. You always see that God was actively drawing you to himself, drawing you to Jesus. And Christianity wasn't something that um, you did. Christianity was something that happened to you. It just happened to you. So there, there's not a person here who, uh, who woke up one morning, you know, you looked at your calendar and you thought, okay, today's, today's the day I'm going to be convicted of my sin. You, 
What do you know? Today's the day I'm going to meet Jesus. Today's the day I think I'm going to have the Holy Spirit come into my life and just completely change my life and give me a new heart. Today's the day. I've got it on my calendar. Today's the day. None of us planned for it, but God did. God planned for that day to be the day, although you had not. Think of all the events that led up to your conversion. Maybe it was a certain conversation that you had, led by somebody else maybe giving you um, just a timely book, something you really needed to hear. Maybe you were someplace where you happened to hear the gospel preached. Now, the question is, do, do you believe that was all coincidence? That was just one big coincidence that somehow brought you to faith. Nobody believes that. Nobody believes it was coincidence. Everyone I know would agree here with the Bible and saying that these things were planned by God. Now, the question is this. Do you think God planned this on the fly? I mean, do, do, do you think like as you're just kind of walking through life, God is walking next to you and it's like, whoa, man, I'm seeing how things are coming together here. And I can, I can work with this. You know, I could, I could just kind of nudge this person here, or I could maybe kind of get this person to say this. Do you think God was planning these things on the fly? Or do you think maybe perhaps God planned this minutes beforehand? Maybe, maybe a day beforehand he planned your salvation. What about a millennia beforehand? That's what we call predestination. That's the word that Paul uses here, predestination. It's a biblical word. You can't get around this. He, he begins by saying chose in verse 4, and then he's going to switch in verse 5 and in verse 11 to, to using predestination. But this word means that basically this is God's choice in which he decides what will happen before it happens. God ordains what will happen before it happens. And this isn't just found here in Ephesians. This is found all throughout your Bible. Really, that God sovereignly deciding what will happen is in just about every page of Scripture. And so you come to places like Acts 13, and um, when Paul is preaching to the Gentiles, and we read in verse 48 this, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We, we don't read that as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. We read that as many as were appointed, or as many as were chosen, believed. John, in, in his gospel, Several times he brings up the times that Jesus talked this way. In John chapter 6, we read, All that the Father gives me will come to me. He doesn't say, Everybody who comes to me, those are the ones that the Father gives me. He says, No, all that the Father gives me, those people will then come to me. Everybody that the Lord chooses comes to Jesus. And just to kind of reinforce that point later, he says, No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And that word draws here, he's not talking about, you know, I have such a magnetic personality, I kind of draw people to myself. That's not the draw there. That's translated elsewhere in Scripture as the word drag. So when Paul was stoned, 
and he was dragged out of the city because they thought he was dead. That's the same word there as draw. So when Jesus says, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him, have that image in your mind. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father drags that person to him. That lifeless, resistant body to Jesus. It's predestination, God's choice, not ours. God's plans, not ours. Once again, this is a theme that we see throughout all of Scripture. It's not just some obscure doctrine here in Ephesians or in Romans. But rather than just going through kind of a laundry list of all the different Scriptures, uh, I really don't want to do that. I, I, I'm happy to do that, really, with anybody who, who wants to go through that later. But what I want to do instead is go over some of the main objections to predestination. Because it... It produces some kind of reaction in us, doesn't it? When we just even hear the word. It produces all sorts of emotions, especially for people who live in a society like ours that values personal freedom and personal choice and individuality above all else. That's what America is founded on. We are the ones who make our own destiny. We're the ones in charge of our own destiny. And so when we hear... Something like this, we, we kind of bow up. It kind of rubs us the wrong way. We have a very emotional response to it. I certainly did for a long, long time. Predestination was not something that came easy for me to believe. It was hard to swallow. So let's look at some of these objections, and I'm just going to look at three. First is that, well, our decisions don't really matter then, do they? If... God's predestined everything, then our decisions don't matter. What, what about that? Next objection um, is this. Well, if you believe that you were chosen, doesn't that produce pride? Isn't that a pretty arrogant thing to say that you were chosen? And then a final objection I want to look at is, well, why share our faith at all? If it's already been determined beforehand, why do we even need to share the gospel? If only those who are predestined are going to believe so let's look at those three objections. Our decisions don't matter. Uh, this is a common objection to predestination, that our decisions don't matter. And I will grant you this, it is the logical deduction of predestination. That we're really just kind of robots, all right? Uh, this is often called fatalism or determinism. And I, I just want you to hear me say that the Bible's view, though, of predestination is far more nuanced than determinism or fatalism, or what you would first think of when you think of predestination. The Bible gives us a far more nuanced view, for the Bible says this, you make choices, and those choices are yours. You actually made them from your own heart and your own mind. You made them, and they're real choices, and they have real consequences. So we hold that, and then we also hold this, Yet everything that happens, happens according to God's plan. It happens because he has ordained it. And we hold those two things in tension or in mystery before each other. We don't drop either one of those. There's a number of places where we can look to see this played out, but um, Proverbs is a great place to go. Proverbs 16.9 says this, the mind of man, or some of your translations might say the heart of man, plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. 
That's the tension there. The mind of man plans his ways. The mind of man makes his decisions, real decisions, his choice. Yet the Lord directs his steps. What actually happens, happens according to God's plan. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Once again, your decisions are your decisions. Yet everything that happens, happens according to God's design. Or as Paul puts it in Ephesians, we've been predestined according to the purpose of his purpose of him who works all things and according to the counsel of his will. So we hold up those two things in tension or in mystery with one another, that our decisions really matter, they really have consequences, and they are really ours. We're not just a robot. And at the same time, everything that happens, happens because God has foreordained it. He has predetermined it. For those of you who like physics, I I love reading books about physics. I don't pretend to understand them, but I, I love reading them. Think of light. Light behaves as both a particle and a wave, which is completely contradictory. But we know that it acts like it has mass like a particle, but at the same time it acts like a wave that has no mass at all. And so the only thing we could do is treat it as both a particle and as a wave. Why? Well, we don't, own, we don't understand why. We just have to say it is. We don't have enough knowledge to say why it is this way. We can only say it is this way. That's very similar to this view of predestination here. It's like, we don't understand why it's this way, but without a doubt, as you look through scripture, you have to hold it together and say, it simply is this way. We just don't have all the information to to explain why. It's a mystery to us in this life. It might be a mystery to us in the next. We don't know. All right, let's look at pride. Believing that we were chosen produces pride. It's a common objection. I mean, after all, if you're the chosen one, I mean, the the chosen one, doesn't that kind of give you kind of an air of superiority to people who were not chosen? And once again, I would grant you that, yes, that would be true. uh, If God was, you know, picking a kickball team or something like that, you know, uh, you know, he's kind, of, he's kind of doing his fantasy draft, you know, whatever it is. And like, you know, this person's going to score me some points. This guy has a lot to bring to the table. You know, I, I really need him on my team. But that's, that's not how God choosing us works. He doesn't choose us because of any value we bring. He's not looking and amazed at our gifts and like, you know, I really could use him on my side. You know, I'm going to, ch- that's not what God does. Matter of fact, he has to choose us before we're even born because when we're born, we're just going to screw it up. And so he chooses us way beforehand, before we've ever done anything. There's no ground to boast. And say it's because of something I've done or because it's who I am. As a matter of fact, if you go through scripture, if anything, it is the exact opposite. So we saw this when Paul addressed the Corinthians, and they were getting all puffed up. And he looked at him and he goes, look at you. Look at Not many of you were wise. Not many of you are noble. 
You don't really have any great gifts. I mean, just look at you. He basically says you're pathetic. But God chose what was weak in the world to shame the wise. You want to know why you were chosen? Because you're weak and pathetic. It's not a grounds for boasting, is it? This is a doctrine that humbles us. Think of your own salvation. Ask yourself once again the question, how is it that I became saved? Why, why, did, why did I believe? And maybe think of a coworker who's not a Christian. And say, why did I believe and this person did not? Just keep asking that question, why? And, and you might think, well, I mean, I believed the gospel. And that person did not. Well, okay. Well, why did he believe the gospel? Well, the gospel just made sense to me. I understood it. And, and this person didn't understand it. Well, why is it that you understood it and this person didn't understand it? Well, I guess that I had this growing awareness of my sin and kind of this need for a savior. Okay, that's great. Well, why did you have that and this person not have that? And you just keep asking the question, why, why, why did you choose this and the other person did not? Keep asking and you're going to finally will it down to, to where there's only one of two answers. Only one of two answers there, and, and it's this. Either I chose to believe because actually I'm a little bit better than this guy. I mean, he didn't choose, but I did. It boils down to just, I mean, I'm not a lot better. No Christian would say that. But, you know, I'm a little, just a little wee bit better. Or you could say, I'm no better. It was God's choice, and I don't understand why but God simply chose me. And can I tell you, this is why the doctrine of predestination is so good for my soul, because confession here. There are many times when I look at people around me who haven't believed, you're living a life of sin, and I think deep down, actually, I'm a little bit better than them. Deep down, that, that's why I'm a Christian, is deep down I'm just a little bit better. And then <laughs> predestination comes on me and just takes my feet out from underneath me. It says, nobody stands on a pedestal before me. And it humbles me. And can I say that this is a doctrine that really we need to embrace. Uh, we need to embrace in America. Because this is a doctrine that puts us all on an equal playing field. It completely destroys any notion of supremacy. Whether it's from an individual or whether it's from a race, you cannot look at anybody else and say, I'm even at, when you strip it all down, I'm even the slightest bit better. God says, you're not. Don't you dare believe that. You were saved by grace. I didn't choose you because you were better. I chose you according to my own purpose. So it's a very humbling doctrine. And I think this gives us the posture that we need in order to live out a life of worship and a life of holiness. Now, there's a temptation for us to think, as we're talking about predestination, you're like, who really cares? I mean, come on. We're actually dedicating an entire sermon to predestination. Uh, we're not in college anymore. It's not two o'clock in the morning. Where, you know when you normally talk about these things. Who who, who really cares? 
And you might be thinking, it doesn't matter if I believe this or if I don't believe this. Well, all that matters is that I love Jesus, I want to worship him, and I want to obey him. And so we, we kind of embrace these things, and then we just put off to the side any notion of predestination or sovereign grace. But we can't put it aside. Don't. You, you want to understand the place that predestination needs to have in our lives, you just need to look at the book of Romans. All right. Uh, Romans is when Paul most clearly lays out his theology of who God is and who man is, and he orders it very strategically. And so we get to Romans 1, and Romans 1 is essentially there is a God. It's a good place to start. <laughs> there is a God. Uh, Romans 2, and this God is going to judge. Okay? Romans 3, bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You have now sinned before this judge. Chapter 4, good news, but you are justified by grace through faith. Chapters 5 and 6, and now you have peace with God. You are reconciled with him. Chapter 7, but what does it mean? Because I'm still sinning. How is it that I'm still sinning? Well, the reason you're still sinning is because you're still in your mortal body and you're still on this earth. But it's okay because... Chapter 8, it will not always be that way. Someday you'll be in a resurrected body, in a resurrected earth, and you will sin no more. I mean, chapter 8 is just like the pinnacle there. But then you get chapter 9. Chapters 9 through 11 is all about predestination. Right after going through all of that, predestination, which prepares you for chapter 12. In which Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. All the mercies I've just talked about. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. So do you see the progression there? Paul teaches about predestination after he gives us the entire gospel. So the entire gospel is given first, and then he says, now I want you to understand why you believed, why you could be secure that you're not going to lose this salvation, and I also want to create in you the posture that is now necessary for you to move forward and live a life of holiness in worship. So it doesn't just go gospel to worship, it goes gospel, predestination, and then worship. And we need to remember that order. You get that order wrong, everything gets messed up. You've met the people who put predestination first before the gospel. I mean, we've all met those people. Uh, I call them jerks, all right? The people were just like, that's all they could talk about is predestination. And, and that's just so damaging and it's so skewed. It's gospel first. But then you've also met the people who put it at the way end of the other end of the spectrum. It's like, all I need is gospel. I just need to love the Lord. I'm going to live a life of obedience. I'm going to worship him. And then maybe when I die, I could get to that issue of predestination. Well, that is equally as harmful because it doesn't create the posture necessary for a life of worship. Gospel. Predestination, which is understanding how it is you came to believe and how you could be secure in this and how you could be humbled. So now you can move forward in a life of worship. This is exactly what Paul presents here in Ephesians 1. Look at verses 4 again. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. He chose us for the foundation of the world. Why? It leads to our sanctification for us to be holy and blameless for our life that has lived to his glory. I am, there's no way I'm going to finish the sermon, guys. There's just no way. All right, why, why evangelize? Why evangelize? Let's see. All right, why, why would we ever share our faith um, if it's already predetermined who's going to come to Christ and who is not? Well, for starters, you're commanded to, okay? That should be enough. But second is this, faith comes from hearing the gospel. And that's not a contradiction with predestination. Look at verse 13. Paul says this, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul has no problem at all talking all about being chosen and predestination and then talking about the necessity of us believing in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And actually, predestination is what gave Paul the confidence he needed to go and share the gospel. And so we just finished, and once again, we we finished our study in 1 Corinthians. For those of you who are here and you can remember way back when we started that series, we looked at Acts when and we studied about when Paul was coming into Corinth. And he was coming in beaten. He had just been in all these places where he'd been persecuted. And he's coming in fear and trembling. And now it's the great city of Corinth. Bigger than Athens. And so he's scared. And so the only, this is the only time that the Lord does this. The Lord actually appears to Paul to encourage him in his faith to go and share the gospel. So so Jesus appears to him, and Jesus says these things in Acts chapter 18. He says, Paul, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So Paul's confidence to go and share the gospel to a place that doesn't have the gospel, his confidence is this. The Lord appears to him and says, you could go ahead and preach the gospel, Paul, because I already have many people in this city. And the moment they hear my voice, they will respond. My sheep hear my voice, and then they come and they follow. And Paul, I'm telling you, I've got sheep. I've gone before you. I've already prepared the soil. So just scatter the seed. And that was Paul's confidence and going into Corinth and sharing the gospel. Now, now for us, I realize this, this just doesn't make much sense that God would declare something. It's, it's irrevocable. It, we know it's going to happen. Therefore, we have to work in order to make it happen. We, we don't think along those ways. But all throughout Scripture, you see that. Um, kind of a silly example you see in Genesis is after the flood, um, God talks to Noah. He says, hey, Noah, I just want you to know I'm not going to destroy the world again in a flood, and 
From now on, there is always going to be a springtime and there will always be a harvest. So God promises Noah, there will always be a springtime. There will always be a harvest. Now we hear a promise like that. There is always going to be a harvest. And you know what we're tempted to do? We're like, thank goodness. You know, now I could just watch TV. You know, we just, we don't have to do anything. We just sit because God declared it's going to happen. But that's not how you see God's covenant people react or respond when God gives them a promise. They actually get to work in confidence that they could bring that about. So the first thing Noah does after he gets the promise, there will always be a harvest, as he says, he plants a garden. He gets to work. So the Lord tells Paul, I've got people in this city. I've got people. My people in this city goes, great, I'm going to go and get there. I'm going to go and proclaim the gospel. It gave him the confidence he needed. And can I just say that we instinctively, whether you're, you know, wherever you land on predestination, I believe every Christian instinctively believes this when we pray. I think we instinctively believe this when we pray. So let's, let's pull up that coworker again that doesn't know the Lord. And let's say you were praying for that coworker. I have never in all my years of meeting with people to pray for the lost have heard this prayer. Lord, I know this person is running away from you. Lord, I know this person is making terrible decisions. So I ask right now that you grant them their free will. I have never heard that prayer. If you pray that, talk to me afterwards. We, we need to do some corrective things, all right? This is how we pray. When, when we see, you know, we pray for that lost person who's making terrible decisions and running away from the Lord, we say, God, save them. God, change their heart. God, take away their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. God, override their will. Do whatever it takes to bring them to yourself. Never do you say, Lord, the best thing is just to let us freely do what we want to do. All of our prayers are about God overriding that. And all of our hopes are that God will override that. And he will drag us to himself. And anybody who has prayed for the loss, they feel that. And that is what they pray for. That's what Paul's unpacking here. Saying, absolutely, our salvation is. All depends on whether God himself is the one who drags us in. And this is something that he has planned before we were even born. That's our confidence to go and share the gospel. When I came to believe this, my evangelism exploded. And in no way withered, it exploded. Okay, so that's predestination, all right? So, um... So let the emails begin. Uh, let me give you my Hotmail account number, all right? <laughs> just, just, just send it all in. I, I do want you to hear this. I hope that Redeemer is a safe place to talk about these things. We need to talk about these things, and this is a safe place. You will never hear me like beat you over the head with something like this, try to be confrontational, argue with you about this. That's that's not the posture we want here. And I hope as you were reading through these words from Paul that you understood that that's not Paul's posture at all. 
I mean, do you even get a hint that Paul is being confrontational here as he talks about predestination? He's not being confrontational. He's being caught up in wonder. This is leading him to absolute worship. Once again, he can't get over the fact that God saved him. And so, so, so this is all as he keeps gushing to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. I did nothing. God did everything. And I pray that as a church, we never get over that as well. It's the heart of the gospel here. Well, let's pray that God writes these things on our hearts. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that your word would do its work and it would humble us and that it would lead us to Jesus. Lord, as we just hold this doctrine in front of us, it's, it's not a doctrine, it's, it's, uh, it's just something that shows us about your love. Before we could even do anything wrong or screw it up, you chose to love us. And we give you thanks and we give you praise. And I pray now that as we hold this before us, we would be enabled to walk a life of holiness, blameless before you. That would be humbled so that we might live a life of worship. All for the glory of Jesus, to the praise of his glorious grace. In his name we pray, amen.